0: It's good to see everybody here this morning. It's uh, it's a blessing to be able to be here, and and I know that you feel the same way. I hope you had a uh, Merry Christmas and was able to uh, celebrate uh, the holiday with your family and and friends, and and uh, just have a good time. And I, I hope that uh, that happened for you. Noah, I was asked today if I was going to be preaching on Noah. Um, for those of you who didn't get that, you'll get it on the way home. Uh, but no, I'm, I'm not going to do that this morning. Uh, but I am going to talk about water, so we, we'll we'll be on that. I would like to discuss the topic of Bible baptism, what it is, what it isn't, and just go from scriptures to see what exactly it is. You know, I, I think that you know sometimes we get very basic on this subject, and I would like to dig. Uh, slightly deeper, if you will, uh, and you know we we, we think about uh, baptism. There are some questions about it in the religious world, and we need to answer those questions of of what baptism is and what it actually does, if it does anything. So let's let's think about those things this morning. Number one is this: Is baptism sprinkling, pouring? or immersion? What is it? You know, we we have to answer that question because when you think about the religious world, they do it in all sorts of different ways, right? Uh, You do have baptism as an immersion. You have people that will uh, say that something is baptism and they'll be pouring water onto a person or they will sprinkle a person with water. Uh, But what do we see in the scriptures? In Acts chapter 8 and uh, verse 38, we see that uh Philip is talking with the Ethiopian eunuch, and you know I, I have to assume that being in a place where it is generally hot that a person would want to have water with them, correct? Even if it were in the winter time, uh a person still needs water in the winter. And I would assume that a person traveling would have water, and they probably would have A fair amount of it. So this Ethiopian eunuch traveling and he is studying the scriptures. And of course Philip comes and says, hey, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, what? Well, how can I unless someone guides me? And it comes down to it. He preaches Jesus unto him. And the end result is that he is to be baptized. He says, look, here is water What hinders me from being baptized? And, of course, you see that they do go into the water, and he baptizes him. Now, if baptism is anything other than immersion, there's a question I have about this passage. Why did they go into the water? Why did they do that? Why in the world would a person do that? Um, You don't have to be immersed, but let's at least get waist-deep in water And then I'm going to pour water over the top of your head. Or I'm going to sprinkle water over the top of your head. You know, it it wouldn't matter, would it? You know, matter of fact, people who do anything other than immersion these days uh, mostly do not require you to get in the water, do they? No, you can walk by a basin of some sort and they will baptize you that way. So... You know, if if baptism is anything other than immersion, the question I have about that passage is, why did they get into water? Next thing is this. When we look at Colossians 2 and verse 12, it mentions baptism as being a burial. Now, I've been to a few funerals, and I have seen a burial. And you know what? I have even buried a dog or two in, in my day. You know, there's one thing that I have never seen and I have never done. And that is, I have never seen anybody buried or never have I buried an animal and left any member of its body sticking up out of the ground. Now, why is that? Why is that? Well, you know, when you are burying somebody, you don't want any part of that body sticking up because of obvious reasons, right? So, we don't don't do that. Now, when we bury somebody, it is that they are completely... In case, in earth. In Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, it it says, uh, Or are you ignorant that all we who were baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into, into His death? We were buried therefore with Him through baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we also might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him uh, in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. So the likeness of his death. We are buried, buried. You know, we, we don't go out to the, to the graveyard to bury somebody and just get a handful of dirt and sprinkle it on them. We don't fill up a cup with, uh, with dirt and just pour it on. No, we completely submerge them into the earth. Besides these things, T.W. Brent, an a, uh, elder and preacher from the Restoration Movement, he had come across several, several definitions uh, for baptism. Every piece of work he ever got. On the subject that anything he ever saw would come across his desk and he quoted it and then he wrote himself a book and it is called the gospel plan of salvation and throughout this book he has in one section he has 100 pages of definitions from different sources explaining what baptism is. And in every single case, every single one, it says this. In some form or fashion, it says, To dip, plunge, or immerse. Now, brethren, I, I want to make sure that you understand, as well as I do, implications here. If this word baptism were to mean anything else... Other than to dip, plunge, or immerse, then we could do other things, right? We could sprinkle. We could pour. It it doesn't matter. We could do something else. But baptism means to dip, plunge, or immerse, and that's it. Now, question. Are there any words in the Greek to describe these other actions? Yes, there are. There are other words. But guess what? They are not used in the context of baptism, if they wanted to use another word, they could have simply said, "You know, I-, I want to use the word sprinkling." And as we see today, we get the word rain from this word. It is rain That means to sprinkle. You know, uh, if they want to use that word, it was it was there for them. They had the ability to use it, yet they chose not to use that word. What about the word to pour? Uh, There is another word to pour, epikeo. It is not used either in the context of baptism. Every single case, baptism is used. No other word is used. Now, baptism is a transliteration uh, for baptizo, which means to dip, plunge or immerse, and it cannot mean any other thing. Uh, There's a Greek scholar uh, that actually, uh, I, I had no idea until I, I, I got to school, that uh, I had a Greek scholar that lived in my hometown. And somebody that, uh, at the Memphis School of Preaching called him up and asked him, okay, I've got a couple of questions for you. You know, what, what, does, what does this mean? Can this mean anything else? Just to have a Greek scholar say yay or nay on it. And one of the questions was this. Can baptism mean anything other than to dip, plunge, or immerse? And guess what he said? Absolutely not. Not in a million years. It only means those things. Now, the second question is this. Is baptism then therefore necessary for salvation? That's a good question. There are a lot of different people that debate this very subject. Matter of fact, uh, I I almost uh, got into a debate myself for this very subject. But people will oftentimes talk about if baptism is actually necessary for salvation. Now, we have to ask ourselves that question and look into Scripture because that is the only place that we can find it. I cannot tell you yes or no without backing it up with Scripture. That is not my place. God has to bring this forth to us. God has to explain it to us. And so what does God say in the scriptures about baptism? Mark 16, 16. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Alright, so what do we see? A person has to believe and they have to be baptized in order to be saved. What about Acts chapter 2? Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, which we're going to talk about in depth here in just a moment. But Acts 2 and verse 38, what does it say? Repent and what? Be baptized for the remission of your sins. Everybody had to be baptized for the remission of sins. What about Acts 22 and verse 16? Speaking of Paul, why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized... Washing away your sins. What about 1 Peter 3.21? 1 Peter 3.21, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Now, I know that I've mentioned this, but for this sermon, I would like to mention it again. Uh, for those of you who did not hear this before. Uh, but I remember... I was uh, working with a church as a youth minister in Athens, Tennessee. And just very, very short distance away is Etowah, Tennessee. And we thought that we'd go over to Etowah and we would do some door knocking. And so we did. We went over to Etowah and we were door knocking. And, and uh, you know, I'm just a, you know, I'm younger than I am now. So I was younger then. And uh, so I I think I was probably about 21, and and so um, I I go up, and I'm really excited, and this guy, he comes to the door, and he has a Bible in his hand, and I'm thinking, this is going to be good. This guy is ready, and we are going to maybe be able to have a Bible study right here on the porch, and I was just thinking how great this is going to be, and I said, hey, hey, you know, my name is Matt McBrayer with Athens Church of Christ, and... We are here to invite you to a meeting that we're having. And he said, Church of Christ, huh? All right. Well, you're the ones who believe that you need to be baptized in order to be saved. And I said, well, yes, sir, that is very true. And uh, the reason we do we say that is because that's what the scriptures teach. Well, no, they don't. Uh, yes, sir, I'm pretty sure they do. And he said, well, you cannot find any verse in my Bible. There's not a verse in my Bible that says that you have to be baptized in order to be saved. And I'm thinking, I'm, you know, I'm a young guy here just going, I'm looking at my chops thinking, I got this. You know, I know the verse here. I'm going to go over to 1 Peter 3.21. I said, hey, 1 Peter 3.21, let's look at that passage. And, uh, you know, he, he opens up his Bible, turns over to 1 Peter 3.21, and he goes, you know, that's not in my Bible. What kind of a messed up translation does this guy have? I'm, I'm looking at him and going, that says King James, All right? I'm thinking, what in the world? And I said, let me see that and he turns his bible around and he shows me he has literally cut out 1 Peter 3:21 he says you know it's not there i don't have to follow it you know brethren we know that that's not right we know that we don't mutilate the word of god for our pleasure we have to follow what it says And you think about Acts chapter two and verse thirty-eight. Uh, if you would look at that with me, Acts chapter two and verse thirty-eight. You know this is after the question comes. You know what? What must we do to be saved? And he says, "What?" Peter says, "Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of sins." You want forgiveness of sins? then you need to repent and be baptized. But you know, in the religious world today, people will say, the word for there does not mean what we think it means. You know what it means? It means because of. So when we're looking at the word for, how should that passage be read? If it is because of, it says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, because of the remission of your sins. That changes the context quite a bit, doesn't it? No longer is it that we have to repent and be baptized in order to get remission of sins, in order to get that forgiveness. But what is it? We are to repent and be baptized because we have already been forgiven of our sins. Now... I am going to take a step back, and I'm not even going to mention the illogical, you know, fallacy that is, you know, given there. The logical fallacy. Let me ask you a couple of questions: Is um, was the Bible written in plain English? You know, we look at this; it is not written. You know, the Bible was not written in English. It was written in Greek. It was written in Hebrew. And in places, it was written in Aramaic. So when you're looking at the scriptures, and you're looking through an English perspective, you have to remember that that is not always going to be right. And so when you look at the word for, the word for in our English language is not the same as it is in Greek. I'll give you an illustration here. I might say this phrase. I might say, I am going to go to the pharmacy for a prescription. What am I using that word for? For. What am I doing? I'm saying, I am going to the pharmacy in order to obtain medicine. All right, I'm going to use the word in a different way now. He went to prison for burglary. He went to prison on the account of he committed a crime. How did we use those two words differently? I'll tell you. One is, it is prospective. It is saying something is going to happen in the future. And then another one, the way we used it, was retrospective, meaning something has already happened in the past, and that is why such and such is happening. And so when we look at the Greek, we have to ask ourselves, which one is it? All right, well, let's ask ourselves that question. The Greek term, ace, which is four, is found 1,750 times in the Greek New Testament. 1,750 times. It is used in a variety of ways. But it always... Every single time is used prospectively, meaning it is in the future. Never once has it or could it have been used retrospectively. Everything has to be done in the future. So when we look at this passage and we're looking at the word for we have to realize that it is not something that has been done already in the past. It's not because something has happened. It is something that we're looking forward to. The word ace here, the word for, is used in various ways, but it is used in forms like this. In, into, unto, to, and toward all things looking forward. Now, to illustrate that even further, if you were to go into an airport, and you're in, in Greece because, hey, they have airports too, and you go in there and, and you've, you've got entrance and exit signs, now, you'll, you'll immediately see that the exit sign looks very familiar to you. They'll have it in Greek. They'll have it in a transliteration there, and they have it in English. Now, do you know what the word for "exit is? No, you do. It's Exodus. So as you are looking up at the sign, you will see "Exodus." You know what you see when you are going in somewhere? When you're going into an entrance, it says, "Aceodus." Ace, the same word here for for. It is something going into, going into the future. It cannot mean anything else. So when we're looking at the word for, it cannot mean because you have already been forgiven of sins. You are to repent and be baptized in order to obtain Remission of sins; it cannot be any other way. When you look at baptism being necessary, uh, it is necessary to follow Christ. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen through twenty. It mentions this that that in order to fulfill the Great Commission, part of that is to baptize people. In Galatians 3 and verse 27, it says, For as many of us as have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. We have to be baptized in order to put on Christ. Brethren, when it comes down to it, is baptism necessary for salvation? Absolutely. Absolutely. And not only that, but we see at the end of Acts chapter 2 that it is the only way to get into the church. You want to be a part of the body of Christ? You want to be a part of his church? Then you must be baptized into it. Now, we've got some other questions here that we need to answer. And, and that says, what about, what about infant baptism? Now, you hear about that every now and then. Infant baptism. Now, uh, you know, I, I remember thinking about this originally and going, uh, what, what in the world? You know, what, infant baptism? I'm, I, I literally thought that people were taking infants and just submerging them underwater. And I thought, how cruel is that? You know, that's just terrible. Uh, but they're using these same thoughts as we've already answered before as sprinkling and, and pouring. But But just continuing on the thought... What about infant baptism? Well, there's a number of reasons why children, specifically infants, uh, should not be baptized. One is this. A person who is baptized should have faith before they are baptized. In Acts chapter 8, verses 35 to 38, that is illustrated. And also... In Mark 16 16, because it says, He that believes, you have to have faith in order to be baptized. What about what about this? A person also, in order to be baptized, must repent. They must repent. Acts chapter two and verse thirty eight. We already mentioned that. Luke thirteen three, I tell you, nay, but unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. So a person must repent. Before they can become a Christian. Before they are baptized in Christ. Uh, Can a baby repent of anything? You know I have a lovely little son. I love him. He sure does get into a lot of trouble. But you know what? That poor little boy doesn't even know half the time what he's doing. So. Should we expect him to repent of something that he seriously does not have the cognitive ability to do? No. He does not understand. So he doesn't understand he's doing things that are wrong. We're instructing him on those things, but he doesn't get it all the way, does he? You who have had children, you know exactly what I'm talking about. All children do this, every single one. The word repent literally means to rethink, to change your mind. And it's a change of mind that results in a change of action. And you know all children do, you know, in their, their early adolescent years. You know all they do is they have this very, you know, selfish thought process really. And all it is is, how can I entertain myself? How can I make myself happy? That is what they think of a majority of the time. I am hungry. I need food. I am bored. I must find a toy. That is all they think about. Do they have the ability to repent? No, absolutely not. You know, there's another sad thought in this world, in the religious world, and it's this. Some people believe that children are literally born in sin. That they are born with sin. Now, there are various ways people look at it, uh, but the simple thought is this. Parents are... Not sinless creatures. And then they therefore pass their sin on to their children. Is that scriptural? Well, let's see. In Ezekiel uh, chapter 18 and verse 20 it says this. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness uh, of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. Now, I have uh, one individual that uh, I know fairly well and and you know his father was one of the biggest liars this world has ever known. He would lie and he would say, "I am working for the Kansas Bureau of Investigation and he would spend weeks away from home in which they came to find out later that he was actually living with another family he had two lives and he was doing all sorts of horrible things he had people that wanted to kill him and they would track him down and they would try to do just that he had people that were drug dealers that knew his every move. And he just was not a very good guy. His son, on the other hand, is a Christian. Let me ask you a question. Would it be fair for a son that has a father like that to bear his father's iniquity? No. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The righteousness of the righteous is going to be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. Whatever we do in life, whatever we do, we have to pay for it. Not our children. Not anybody else. But we do. Another question that people have is, you know, what about, what about this? What about the thief on the cross? You know, I want to be saved like the thief on the cross. Well, first of all, no, you don't. Because in order to be saved like the thief on the cross, you are going to have to be on the cross right next to Jesus. You, you don't want that. But you know what? Another part of this is we do not have that option. We do not have the option... Uh, To be saved in this way. And what they're saying is this: you know, what did Jesus say? You know, today you will be with me in paradise. You know, isn't that great? Isn't that a wonderful thought? That's a wonderful thought. But we do not have that option today. Jesus was able to save him in this way. We don't have the authority, nor do we have the example of such for ourselves. The real issue is that the thief did not even die within the New Covenant. And people have argued this time and time again. They'll say, well, yeah, he died in the New Covenant. It's in the New Testament. Now, see, there's this verse in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 17, and it talks about the New Testament. And it talks about... When it is to be in effect. And it is after the testator dies. Because while he lives, that testament is not a force. But when he dies, that testament is a force. And someone will say, well, you know, that's But Jesus said. You know what? Jesus had not died yet. He had not died yet. Because in John 19, verses 31 through 33, after this has already been said, they come over and they break the legs of these two men. But Jesus had only just perished. In Luke 23 and verse 43, it says, And he said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today. He said it before. He died. Not after he died. It was before. What about Cornelius, though? What about Cornelius? I mean, you know, you look at Cornelius, and Cornelius was told what he must do to be saved, but it doesn't say that he was baptized, does it? Uh, Well, in Acts chapter 10 and verse 6, Cornelius is told... About Peter in Acts 11 and verse 14, he then tells them what they must do to be saved. Interesting phrase there, because that same phrase of what a person must do to be saved is used where? Acts chapter two. And what is that phrase dealing with? It is dealing with baptism. Now, the fact of the matter is this. The fact is that once you see baptism introduced in Acts chapter 2, everything after that follows the same suit. Everything. What, What about this phrase, though? Another question. You know, Paul said that he did not come to baptize. Right? So baptism must not be all that important because Paul did not come to baptize. Well, everyone knows that Paul did not come to baptize. First uh, Corinthians 1 and verse 17. That is absolutely right. That was not his purpose. His purpose was not specifically to baptize. But if we read the rest of the verse, we realize this. That Paul was sent to do What? He was sent to teach the gospel. He was sent to preach it. And a part of that is what? Is baptism. He wasn't there. And what he was saying is, I'm not come here specifically to baptize people. Now, I'm I'm here to teach. I'm here to help you to understand what you must do. And now, in the end of that, that is what? That is to be baptized. But he wasn't there for that specific purpose. He was there to teach Baptism means to dip, plunge, or immerse. Baptism is necessary for salvation. You know what? We have noted many of the things that people say within the religious world about this subject. Now, what we need to do real quick before we, uh, uh, we leave the place today is this. We need to be specific about how one must be saved. Now, I'm not sure if I've done this for you, but this is what I teach children. This is an easy way to remember it. And I just put my hand up and I saw it over here with my pinky. And I say this number one, you have to do what? You have to hear. You have to hear the word of God. So you hear, and then after you hear, you have to believe. And after you believe, you have to repent. And then after you repent, you must confess. And after you confess, you must be baptized. And then finally, you live a faithful Christian life. You cannot leave out a single step. It has to be all those things. And how do we come to that conclusion? How do we know that those are the things that we must do? Well, it's because the Scripture teaches it. We have to hear the word of God, Romans ten seventeen, so then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. We must hear first, after we have heard, and that's the logical step, brethren. That we don't even have to name that, that's just so logical. But we we hear it and then after that we have the opportunity to believe. John three and verse sixteen for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So hear, believe, repent. Luke thirteen three, I tell you, nay, but unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Hear, believe, repent, confess. Uh, Romans ten and verse ten, I like that. Uh, Matthew ten and verse thirty two and thirty-three. This is the the point is simple. We have to do this every day of our life. We confess Christ before men. If we confess Christ before men, then we uh, will be accepted. We'll be accepted. He'll, he will uh, give us over to the Father. But if we deny Him, He will deny us also before the Father which is in heaven. And so we hear, believe, repent, confess, and then we must be baptized into Christ. Uh, I, we've mentioned a lot of verses about this today, but First Peter three twenty one, the like figure wherein to, even baptism doth also now save us, and then we simply must live faithfully. Revelation two and verse ten, be thou faithful unto death, and thou shalt receive the crown of life. Maybe it is this morning that you have not yet obeyed the gospel. And we'd love for you to do that today. Maybe you have obeyed and yet you have fallen away or you have done something that you know you need to repent of. We'll be glad to help you out with that this morning. Uh, if you are in need to respond to the invitation for any reason, please come as we stand and as we sing. I have